Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. And what a week in the spy world. We had the so-called peanut butter spies, the Annapolis couple who allegedly tried to sell U.S. nuclear submarine secrets to an unidentified foreign power by hiding a computer chip in a peanut butter sandwich. Too many spy novels for them, I think. And the CIA announces a new initiative to spy on China. More on that in a bit. But speaking of stopping threats, Gene, you've got something on problems in the Secret Service. Yeah, if you were ever interested in joining the U.S. Secret Service, a report issued this week might make you think twice. It says agents are very unhappy and leaving at a high rate because of long hours, difficult conditions. But a former employee says, hey, that is simply the job. And even a massive infusion of money and personnel isn't going to change it. The job of protection is not a nine to five profession. It is something that is is all consuming to an agency. And if it's all consuming to an agency, it's all consuming to its employees. And trying to find that that work-life balance has always been a struggle. You can try to add more bodies, but those more bodies to that agency are only going to be gobbled up very quickly. The agency is always overworked because you just think about the nature of that work. We'll talk more with Jonathan Wackrow, a former Secret Service agent, later in the show. Looking forward to that, Gene. Now, last week, the CIA made a big to-do about setting up a new China section, a center to combine case officers, spy catchers, and intelligence analysts in one place to focus on doing a better job of recruiting Chinese spies and blunting Chinese espionage. I thought there was something odd about the CIA summoning reporters to make such an announcement. So I called up one of the leading reporters on the development, Shane Harris, who's been covering the spy agencies for the Washington Post and other news organizations before that for years. Shane Harris, welcome to Spy Talk. You were one of the reporters who was briefed by CIA last week on its announcement that it was establishing a new China center. One, it struck me as kind of belated. And two, I wondered why they were making a big deal of it. Why is the CIA announcing it's opening a new China center? Well, one answer might be because uh, it is a little bit late in coming and they want the world to know that they're that maybe that they're on it. You know, it, it's not often, you're right, that they actually bring reporters in and say, we're creating a new mission center. They didn't do that with Iran or with Korea, I believe, uh, which were some of the more recent iterations mm-hmm. of this. But it's clearly important to the administration and to the leadership at Langley that the world knows that they are making China the number one priority. And, and when we asked them, you know, why do you think you need a mission center? Like you already have mission centers for some things and, you know, you do have a whole area of operations that focuses on China. And the message from them was that there's no other country that cuts across every sort of mission and concern and corner of the agency the way China does from the operations folks to the analysts, to the science and technology people. It's kind of this all encompassing target, if you will. And that was their justification of why it needed a new center. And, you know, of course, there's been plenty from Director Burns in public saying that he believes that China is the number one geopolitical threat or adversary. He said that in the statements that he made. So I think they just want this message to get across loud and clear that, you know, if you wanted to be like really historical about it, China is the new USSR, right? China is the new main enemy. And I think that bringing us in there to footstomp that fact was all kind of part of the rollout. Oh, exactly, Shane. It seems to me that they didn't need to make an announcement. And if, again, going back to my original question, China has been a major adversary or has been termed a major adversary of the United States 
for a decade at least. So it strikes me as puzzling that they're just setting up a China center now when they had gone ahead during the previous administrations to set up special centers for North Korea and for Iran. So why the delay? You know, it's a good question. I'm not entirely sure that there's an easy answer to it. There was this big reorganization under Brennan during the Obama years. So I think there's maybe some a little bit of an allergic reaction to some within the agency of like anything that smacks of reorganization. And the, uh, the senior CIA official who briefed us was very clear to say, this is not a reorganization. We're not doing that again. And we're not trying to upset anything that Director Brennan may have done. And yet um, that's exactly what Director Brennan had done, setting up well, these then, mission yeah. centers. Exactly. The mission center model was supposed to be this idea that you would, you know, have a place that cuts across all of the functional areas and the directorates Mm -hmm. of the agency. Right. And it makes to a lot of people it made sense on paper, including the spy recruiters, the case officers, including counterintelligence, including the analysts and the technology people all in one place. Right, right. And they did this, interestingly, on Iran and Korea. Pompeo actually made that decision. Okay, we need an Iran mission center. We need a Korea mission center to do North Korea. Notably, as they're creating now this new China mission center at CIA, they're taking the Iran mission center and the Korea mission center, and they're reabsorbing them back into the places from whence they were cleaved off. So they're kind of saying like, all right, those mission centers, yeah, 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 we're kind of going to undo that one. But the China one is this new thing we want to keep. I mean, I suspect that part of the answer to this, too, is there's always going to be these kind of bureaucratic fiefdoms, as you know. And there's always and and there was a big resistance to the mission center, I think, largely from some of the operations folks when this thing went in under Brennan. Right. I mean, they were like they didn't necessarily want to have to be forced into the same room with, you know, with the analysts. Well, it cut the Um, legs out from beneath the uh, head of operations, who's always the chief cardinal in the Vatican. And suddenly these mission center directors were reporting directly to the head of the CIA around the head of director of operations. You know, it sounds a little bit like the TV sitcom, The Office. You know, you come in (laughs) and suddenly there's a new sign on the door. And actually, do you know, does this mean that chairs and desks are moved around? uh, Floors are exchanged. You go to a different building. You come in to go to your usual office and it's moved to a another part of the Langley campus or some offsite building? You know, I suspect that it must. I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, the Europe and Eurasia mission center, which, you know, is kind of like the old Russia desk. I mean, I mean, that occupies a whole floor or a portion of a floor anyway in the old headquarters building. I suspect there must be some, you know, moving around of people and changing of offices. Conceptually, I think that, This is one of the points they wanted to try to get across on China when we asked, you know, why is it that you're getting rid of these other mission centers, but then you think it's a good idea with China? And this official who briefed us just kept coming back to the notion that there's something unique about China and the way it's just so big that it hits across every one of these different pieces of the agency. Whereas like Iran, for instance, they felt Iran is enough of a regional threat that we need it to be within the whole kind of Near East center so that we can pull from our allies in the region. We can, you know, pull from, I guess, the Jordanians, the Israelis. We don't want to just isolate Iran by itself. But that China was so cross-cutting already that just make a center out of it. I mean, at the end of the day, I suppose it's just how do you want to draw the lines of accountability, right? And if the idea here is that you would have one center, because it's going to be a pressure point that I suppose the director could come down on, you know, figuratively uh, and get things done. Maybe that's a good reason to create a mission center. I mean, all it tells you is that this is how they're sort of structurally thinking about, you know, approaching China and, you know, not to be overly cynical about it. Right. But it's like, okay, well then, you know, some people are going to say, just get on with the mission of recruiting spies in China, which has been a pretty big problem for the past several years. Yeah. It does seem political as you kind of suggested earlier, that this seems to be a, almost a psychological warfare announcement. We're, we're telling Beijing. I mean, who, who's this message directed at? Is it directed at Beijing to say, hey, we're upping our game or we're going to... I mean, the Chinese got to be sort of laughing up their sleeve at this announcement. It's not like CIA wasn't paying attention to China before. 
and you know its analysts weren't paying attention to case officer reports and so on that the director of the CIA himself wasn't paying attention so it all seems to be more of a political announcement than a really important structural announcement and as i said even if you're making an important structural change why announce it to the world why call in all the CIA beat reporters and and make a big deal about it yeah and i think i mean i suspect i mean look there's probably legitimate operational and structural reasons why they wanted to do this that they think will work. So, I mean, giving them the benefit of the doubt there. But I was struck by the way that, you know, the optics of the rollout, it seems like this is very much directed, you know, at Beijing. And, you know, whether or not they're sort of, you know, rolling their eyes at it, I suppose that this is also a way for Director Burns to make very clear that he sees his objective, his tenure there, if you will, of, you know, Pivoting onto this great power competition theme that we've been, you know, talking about now for years. Right now, I can remember when Gina Haskell was the director, and three years ago or two years ago, was saying, you know, we're now moving away off the counterterrorism footing back towards Russia, China, North Korea. This is, I suppose, a way for them to then say, and oh, by the way, we put China very much at the top of that list. And so, if it has a kind of rhetorical framing aspect to it, I suppose it's a way to get people. As we're doing now, talking about okay, is China now, you know, sort of main enemy? Is this should we be thinking about the Cold War for analogies? In fact, when we 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 pressed this official on that, and you know, he said, you know, it's different from the Cold War insofar as like the Soviet Union wasn't the second largest world economy that was completely integrated in every facet of our lives, from supply chains to technology and so on. But it was similar. In the sense that what the agency wants to do now is, as they put it, forward deploy more specialists and technologists and operations people around the world in countries where China has a presence. So, in a sense, you could think about like Africa as right. being sort of like this new domain now, where we're going to be trying to put people to counter China's influence. Well, again, this that is feels a, very Cold War. Yeah, but this again seems to be um, what's the word redundant announcement we've known for decades. That the best, or the only really f- best feasible access to Chinese targets, Chinese diplomats, and other officials who might be susceptible to recruitment, is in Africa, where they have embassies, or in Latin America, far outside of the mainland, where it's very tough. As you know, the all-encompassing Chinese secret police are on top of foreign spies. It's easier to access them, not easy, but easier to access them in places like Latin America. But that's nothing new. It's the same place where we go after North Koreans, for example. Yeah. Uh, they're lonely. These young single male North Koreans in, in Zimbabwe or wherever, you know, they're more susceptible to recruitment. So, again, this is, seems a, a bit odd. Let me ask you uh, this from another direction. Is this announcement at all related to the losses, widely reported losses that CIA has suffered in China, where, according to many reports, many of its agents were rolled up, maybe dozens of CIA spies were rounded up and arrested and executed? I think you have to look at them together. You know, whether or not the agency did this kind of roll out in response to those stories, which have been around for some years. I don't know whether it was particularly pinging off of that, but you can't look at the creation of a new mission center that is supposed to be about clearly increasing the level of intelligence gathering on China and not talk about the fact that intelligence gathering on China has, by many accounts, taken a massive hit from when so many of those networks were rolled up. Maybe going back to like 2011 is really kind of when people sort of timed that which then begs the question, I mean, have we been kind of deficient in our spy recruitment for a decade in China? So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, from people I talk to on the operational side of this, you know, I don't think anybody is trying to, well, how do I put this? We need more intelligence gathering in China proper. And nobody would go out and tell you that like, oh, yes, this is an environment that we've got massive coverage on. I think that the, the mission center is to some degree meant to underscore, or at least if it's not meant to, it is, just how important it's going to be for the agency to actually start recruiting those sources and repairing it or building those networks. I mean, it was interesting that 
this briefing from the agency came at the same time that the New York Times had reported, and then we had also confirmed that the counterintelligence officials at the agency had dispatched this, you know, uh, bulletin essentially to all of the missions and bases around the world, saying, "Look, we are losing an alarming number of assets, and you know, we all know that spying is a dangerous business, but to our operations officers." up your game when it comes to source protection. Be more careful about this because we cannot afford to lose these assets. I think one way to read that is to say that we're living in an environment in which it is, I'm not going to say it's easy, but it is perhaps easier for some of these governments to identify who are these assets by exploiting the technology that the agency is using to communicate with them. And you know, it was widely reported that one way that the Chinese were able to roll up so many assets in China was by penetrating the CIA's covert communication systems. And you know, has the agency become too reliant, we might ask, on, on technology to communicate and facilitate these interactions? Well, if that's the case, then does that mean we got to get back to you know, more kind of, as we would put it, shoe leather reporting and actually meeting people where they are? These are all really interesting questions mm -hmm. that when the agency says we're creating a China mission center sort of ends up spotlighting a little bit, I think, you know, where their deficiencies actually lie and where they've been, they've had some real weaknesses. And so it was, it was notable that at the same time they're trumpeting this new center, they're also putting out this message to people in the field that we know we've got a real issue here with our assets being discovered. I want to get back to this technology in a little bit, but for those of you who are just tuning in, I'm talking to Shane Harris, the very highly regarded reporter on intelligence and national security at the Washington Post. As part of that meeting that you had with CIA officials or yeah, officials last week, they announced a new technology officer. We've had, they've had a technology officer for some time. There was Gus Hunt for a number of years who just uh, left the agency recently and went to the private sector. So what, what's that all about? And, and how does that relate to the CIA's challenge of getting around new technology that thwarts traditional intelligence tradecrafts, such as crossing borders and changing passports? Very hard to do now with the biotechnology that, that's uh, built into many passports and custom controls. But who's the new technologies officer? What does it mean to announce a new technology officer when they've had one for years. Yeah, and they didn't have any names for us. I think the position hasn't been filled. I was a little bit puzzled by that one, too. Which is it's odd, been, which is odd on its own that they haven't filled the position. It's so yes, important, but they haven't filled right. the position. Well, and they were very quick to say that this wouldn't be competing with sort of other, not necessarily chief technology officers, but chief type people in technology positions that they have already in the agency. So it was a little bit puzzling as, okay, so what exactly is this person going to do? And, and there were so many other announcements that they were kind of un unrolling that it, it was not one we spent a whole lot of time on. But there is also going to be, here we go with another center and more acronyms, but there's going to be this transnational, I think I have this right, transnational and technology something center. The point being is that this is the place, and it's not clear to me if this is where the chief technology officer will sit or if he or she will have some interface with it, but this new center where they essentially want to devote more attention to creating technologies to allow officers in the field to communicate with those agents. And so we had to kind of like, you know, circumnavigate the, the words here that this senior official was using, but he kept coming back to the fact that that this center would be devoted to issues regarding tradecraft. And so when I said, okay, it sounds like by tradecraft, you're talking about the problems that you had with covert communications in the past being foiled and penetrated and used to find your agents. And the response was like, I'm not talking about anything specific. I will just say this center is going to focus on technology and tradecraft. So what that's telling you is, right, we got to build stuff to communicate with these people that can't be foiled by the Chinese. But but we've had that. We've had uh, well, wait, our, our I guess it's version like we just need to do more of it and do it better. <laughs> so did we kill Q? And is that why there's a gap in technology? Is this like Q prime? I mean, I, you know, I'm, uh -huh. it's, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it, it, to say that they need a center to do it suggests that there's something that it's not enough about how they're already doing it now. Right. Yeah. 
And they were very careful to, you know, to not make this sound like, oh, we're not creating a new this because the old way of doing it was bad. But I mean, on some level, you clearly they're doing it because they feel like the old way was insufficient or you need some kind of new focus. But let's what talk the chief about, technology officer yeah. does and all that, it's that's a little opaque to me still. Well, let's talk about the need for better technology and losses. There were not only large losses by all accounts in China. There were big losses in Iran as well uh, a number of years ago, and I'm hearing more recently. And you may be familiar with Douglas London and his new book about the CIA, which excoriates CIA management and a lack of accountability. He said one particular senior executive left a trail of dead bodies in Iran. He didn't say specifically Iran, but I think that was clear what he he was talking about. What do you hear about? accountability and mismanagement or bad management at CIA? You know, I think operations people who I talk to are probably understandably somewhat defensive and will say like, look, spying is a very dangerous business. People are, are, you know, inevitably there, there is risk involved in this. I think that if there's a critique of management on this score, it might go something like this is If you're going to rank us as operations officers for promotion based on how many people we're recruiting, and if the the message from CIA is the way to advance through the ranks is through more recruitment, then naturally people are going to change their risk calculus and focus on how many assets can we recruit and maybe less on the tradecraft of keeping them safe. So if there's kind of a managerial shortcoming some people I've talked to have said if you, it, is, it is in placing emphasis for promotion on the recruitment of assets. And if you want to change that calculus and say that promotion is going to be not based on how many assets you recruit, but about quality of information or how many you keep safe, fine. But from the perspective of a lot of ops people, the incentive is on recruitment, not on source protection, which is, of course, not to say that like source protection is not important. But if that's where the sort of the management is sort of telling people, this is the direction you need to go in. You know, their actions are going are to necessarily probably follow from that. In terms of you know, the actual, you know, how the code comes, you know, were penetrated or you know, an over-reliance on technology, frankly, I hear that from people as well. If, you know, if, 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 if it, the losses in any, Iran were directly related to communications uh, lapses, actually managerial lapses and in uh, operating the covert communications plan. Yeah, I mean, and there's a real question there has been for years of whether or not the penetration in China was what allowed the penetration in Iran, right? And so, you know, if, if you, you know, there's been questions about whether the penetration in China was the result of the mole, the Jerry Lee case, there are some people who believe that that is sort of was, you know, the entry point. But he if was an ex-CIA officer. Jerry yeah. Lee was an ex-CIA officer who began working with Chinese intelligence. Right. Right. So not to blame any one person in this, but if, you know, if, if the system that has been set up to communicate with all of these assets in the field has been compromised in some fundamental way, who do you hold accountable for that? Right. Well, presumably when you could talk about the people who built the system in the first place and, and you would have to ask questions, I think, you know, of whether there's too much reliance on those kinds of systems for communicating with people, you know. Does the mission center, you know, have as a focus, and I, I should say, I don't know the answer to this, not just building, you know, newer and better modes of technology and communication with people, but rather trying to not be so completely reliant on those systems. We will see, right? But I mean, the, the Covcom penetrations that led to those rollups in China and Iran, my understandings were pretty damn devastating. So you would hope that with some kind of, of this new reorganization of the org chart comes a new focus on, okay, well, what were the tradecraft failures that led to this? Uh, and let's not repeat them. So we're, we're going to see that play out, I suspect. I mean, they won't be announcing that part. <laughs> That'll be up to us to go figure out what the hell's going on. But, you know, nobody's like kidding themselves and thinking like that these were not devastating losses and that we've got great human spy networks in China and Iran. I don't think that uh, they're, they're as robust as they may have once been. Let's put it that way. And we can only hope and trust that uh, the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians are having the same challenges with communicating with their agents who are working against us. Speaking of which, before we go, we have to bring up the peanut butter sandwich. 
the couple that was arrested over the weekend for trying to sell nuclear submarine secrets to a foreign power. That foreign power was not named in the Justice Department indictments. And and there's been some suggestions in a New York Times story that it might not have been a known adversarial power that this couple who live in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, were trying to communicate with. I tweeted uh, a pro tip that uh, if you're trying to spy for foreign power, don't use the mail to communicate with their embassy because FBI and the U.S. Postal Service have got that covered and they're going to pick up your mail, uh, which is what happened. An FBI agent was provided with the mail by the foreign country, according to reports, and then began to impersonate the foreign intelligence services. Easily reeled in this couple, according to the indictment. But one of the things that struck out for uh, that stuck out for everybody, of course, is that one of the dead drops that uh, the couple used to uh, deliver uh, information to the what they thought was a foreign power was to put a uh, a, a computer chip in in a half peanut butter sandwich. You got to give some props to them for that. That was pretty pretty cool. Yeah, these may not be the brightest spies uh, that ever lived, but you know, just in terms of the of the color and the gift that they have given us as reporters for being able to write about a dead drop inside of a peanut butter sandwich, I'm somewhat grateful for that. Uh, I too, you know, when I, when I saw that the, the FBI was alerted to this by the foreign government that you know the peanut butter sandwich spies were trying to sell this to, uh, it made me wonder: like, were they trying to sell this to an ally? Who then, of course, like turned around and said, "Hey, FBI, FYI, you've got a problem over here." I, I, given the uh, the the, uh, uh, the level of intelligence that these two seem to have evinced, it wouldn't surprise me if they were trying to turn around and sell this to to an ally or something, but. I love stories like this because they're just a reminder, right? I mean, what does they say? Espionage is the second oldest profession. I mean, mm-hmm. somebody who has access to this information, there's always going to be somebody in that organization who's going to try to profit off it and who's going to try to sell it. And yeah. you know, if you're in counterintelligence, boy, is this this is another one of those case studies where you're like, this is why we should be investing in counterintel. It was handed uh, to us a, on a platter, you might say. On a peanut butter platter. Exactly. <laughs> Shane Harris. Thanks so much for joining us on the Spy Talk podcast. I'm sure we'll be talking again. It's always great fun talking with you. Anytime, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. My pleasure. You can find Shane Harris's work at the Washington Post. He's also the author, by the way, of two terrific books on intelligence, The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State, and more recently, At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. Gene? I know you were laughing about the peanut butter spies from Annapolis, but, you know, it really raises a serious question about insider threats. This guy had a top secret clearance from DOD. He also had an active Q clearance from DOA, which is their top classification. And in the court documents, he says reportedly in one of his conversations with this unnamed Second Nation that he collected the classified information slowly so as not to raise concerns. He's quoted as saying, we received training on warning signs to spot insider threats. This is serious. Yeah, it is serious. But, you know, it just goes to show you once again, you can't really protect very well against insider spies who have private lives of desperation. They need money. They need attention. They need their grievances uh, addressed. Money is a very big issue for people, for Americans who spy. Usually uh, in in the Soviet Union and Russia and China, people come to spy for us for ideological reasons. But whether you're uh, running a coffee shop with baristas or uh, a Pepsi Cola plant or the CIA or a U.S. Navy submarine uh, engineering operation, you count on the trust of employees to be loyal and uh, not uh, go out of bounds and uh, try to sell secrets. So what we know so far, according to the indictments, is that this couple was driven by money because otherwise they had uh, satisfying lives, both of them. So it's, it's, it's a constant problem and, and there's very little you can do 
to protect against insider spies unless they are exhibiting bizarre behavior at work. But does it raise questions about the review of top clearances and how carefully they're done? I don't know. Unless someone is exhibiting, have been talking about at the office, you know, boy, we really need some money. We got kids going to college. We're really broke. Or the employee is, uh, you know, a noticeable alcoholic or uh, opiate uh, addict. If someone's maintaining private behavior, not exhibiting problems at work, it's very, very hard to detect. Now, having said that, there are periodic polygraph exams given to certain categories of employees in the security agency. So they can be caught by a polygraph. But then again, as the famous, the legendary Aldrich Ames case exhibited, a dedicated spy, a dedicated mole can pass a polygraph. All it takes is a little bit of training and crunching your toes, other methods to defeat a polygraph. So, you know, spying is, is the world's second oldest profession. Spies are always going to be with us. And that means there are always going to be people who betray their government, whether it's they're Chinese or Russian or, in this case, Americans. Well, I look forward to learning more about these two as, uh, as things move forward. Stay with us. We're going to talk about the U.S. Secret Service and problems there coming up. And let me remind you also, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. A lot of great material there, all about intelligence and national security. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back. The National Academy of Public Administration has issued an alarming report on the U.S. Secret Service, saying morale is low, and because of that, the level of risk is higher. NAPA is nonpartisan, independent, and did the report at the request of Secret Service leadership. We talked about it with Jonathan Wackrow, who worked for the agency for more than 13 years, including a stint on President Obama's protective detail. I asked him if the report reflects a crisis at the Secret Service. Crisis is a very strong word. It's a, I would better describe the Secret Service as an agency that's struggling to keep up with the dynamic pace of the operating environment it's forced to engage in. How has that um, operating environment changed? Prior to 9-11, there was a balance between the investigative mission uh, and the protective mission of the Secret Service. Post 9-11, that was not an equal balance. It became heavily focused on protection, I think rightly so at the time. However, the Secret Service has struggled with how to maintain this increased focus on the protection side of its dual mandate while integrating into a new department, the Department of Homeland Security, uh, and then figuring out as the, as the world and the threat environment changed, how do they keep pace with that? All while trying to maintain its investigative responsibilities of crimes against the Treasury, such as credit card fraud, bank fraud, uh, and, and the, the core competency of, of counterfeit. Underfunded? It's always underfunded, but that's law enforcement in general. I think if you look at law enforcement, whether it's federal law enforcement agencies or even local municipalities, you're always going to find underfunded, understaffed, under-resourced departments. That's the nature of, of policing and law enforcement. What is essential, though, is you have to be able to use the right resources at the right time to execute on your mission, right? You can't always go through the cycle of, I want more, I want more. You have to play with the cards that you have at that moment in time. And I think the resource allocation is always a struggle for a agency that's mission is going to constantly change. And you think about how much it changes in such a short period of time. You know, our protectees change, the protective mandates change, the threat environment changes. So you may have X amount of resources put towards the White House, for instance, in terms of the uniform division officers. But as we saw starting back in 2019, protests that led to civil unrest, that led to a lot of other physical security issues surrounding the White House, necessitated additional manpower. But 
they didn't have the additional manpower. So what you had was this acute shock of that moment that led into a persistent problem with uniform division officers feeling fatigued, overworked, you know, they're under-resourced. So those are the types of things that's very hard for leadership to anticipate. However, that's why I think they have to build a different model internally to build in greater agility to pivot to what the priority of the moment is. That way you're not overwhelmed all of the time. Let's talk about the staffing issue for just a moment. This report lays out long hours, agents who don't get days off, who are simply in a grind. Is that accurate? It is accurate. And and, and that's the job. The job of protection is not a nine to five profession. It is something that is is all-consuming to an agency. And if it's all-consuming to an agency, it's all-consuming to its employees. And trying to find that that work-life balance has always been a struggle. You can try to add more bodies, but those more bodies to that agency are only going to be gobbled up very quickly. The agency is always overworked because you just think about the nature of that work. I mean, when you operate at a zero-fail mission methodology, I mean, you're always going to have self-induced stress. You're always going to overwork yourself. Your coworkers are always going to be overworked to ensure that nothing is missed. And I think that's where that burnout comes from. So what you're saying is, it seems to me, burnout is just part of the job. Get used to it. Burnout is part of the job today, but it doesn't have to be moving forward. How do you do that? I believe that the Secret Service needs to actually recast the mission, vision, and values of the agency. And when you do that, you have to do a a real assessment of your manpower and understand how your manpower is utilized. One problem that the service has had over time is that it's very parochial. It's parochial around the special agent groups. It's parochial around the uniform division groups and then the technical professionals that also support and the administrative professionals. What has to happen is we have to have cross-divisional synergies amongst all of those groups and work as one, not in these different silos. And then when you start looking at all of your manpower, you're able to appropriately apply the right manpower to mitigate threats accordingly based upon where you need them. So Um, it sounds like you're pointing a finger at leadership and the culture. Well, it is a cultural thing. And I'm not, I, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm pointing a finger at, at leadership because I, I, I truly believe that they understand that this is where they should go. There are just challenges in, in making that cultural shift. Like any organization, it takes time. And I think that progress has been made not as fast as many people would want, but they are trying to move in the right direction. And this report actually showed some of that. We just need to ha- make it happen faster where we can do that so that we take away those stressors, right? So when the moment of acute shock does arise, we're well prepared for it. We're, we shouldn't be living in this you know, persistent stress environment. But the report says there's a, a high attrition rate and 30% of employees have fewer than three years on the job. For an organization with a mission as important as the one shouldered by the U.S. Secret Service, that mm-hmm. sounds very serious. Well, that is serious. When you have 8% of your workforce leaving per year, and then if I look specifically at the uniform division officers, and you have 13% of that workforce, which again, already overtaxed and under-resourced, those are significant numbers that have a, a ripple effect across the entire agency. That has to be addressed. And to me, it comes down to mobility and growth opportunities. When you start giving mobility options and you start giving greater opportunities to to rise into specialized units or rise into specialized training, that is what's going to empower your workforce and make them want to stay. I think you have to look at what's driving these officers and agents and technical professionals to leave so quickly. I think when we look at it in terms of like a manpower continuum, we're heavily focused on the the recruiting aspect of it. 
And by the way, are they having trouble with recruiting? Are fewer people looking to become members of the Secret Service? The Secret Service is falling victim to what you're seeing again across law enforcement in general. It's hard to recruit, whether it's a large municipality like New York City or smaller uh, municipalities around the country. The recruiting aspect of the profession is is very difficult. Mm -hmm. You have 8% of your workforce leaving. You're having trouble recruiting. Do they have a huge gap personnel-wise within the Secret Service right now? Yes, they do. They have an experience gap. That, that's, it, it, it's getting wider and wider. And leadership knows that. And again, they've taken measures to identify the areas of concern for both officers and agents, uh, again, with pursuant to mobility and the ability to uh, move around. They just need to act upon that much quicker. What kind of risk does this pose? So that's a great question. I think this report had highlighted that when you look at it at its the surface level, when you have attrition, overworked, under-resourced officers and agents, you're going to say there's an increased risk. Yes, there is. However, I go back to the qualities that those officers and agents possess. They operate on a different methodology. You know, when this notion of zero fail is not aspirational. It's actually taken as sacred within the agency. So individuals will drive themselves to work harder and work better to achieve that zero fail mission objective. That puts a lot of stress. You mentioned the phrase zero fail, as you, I'm sure, know, that's the name of a book that was written about the the Secret Service by a Washington Post mm-hmm. reporter. And Carol Leonig, I think I'm saying her name correctly, um, wrote that there were agents who believed that it was just a matter of time until a president was shot on their watch, that they were relying on luck. Do you agree with that assessment? I don't agree with that assessment because the protective methodology that the Secret Service puts forward is something that has been modeled by tier one protective agencies around the world. The 360 degrees in all direction protection that the service provides, both from the physical standpoint and from critical infrastructure protection all around you know, the president, vice president, our protectees, I think is a model that will not allow that critical incident to happen. Now, that doesn't negate human failure, human exhaust. uh, And I think that's what a report like this is trying to highlight, is that we know that we have to solve for that problem. But at its core, the Secret Service mission and the way that they execute it, and they have been executing it and improving it year over year, is going to prevent that critical failure moment that you know, some had described as a possibility. I think it's a low probable of, probability of occurrence from ever happening. You have said that leadership should be more nimble, should be more creative, should find ways to move people and create opportunities. But does Congress also bear responsibility for the state of the U.S. Secret Service right now? Congress bears responsibility. The Secretary of Homeland Security bears responsibility. They're the they're the direct uh, re- reporting entity. But you know, leaders of these organizations do realize where the problems lie and what needs to be done to fix it. And I have to give the director credit for implementing some of these changes. I mean, there's no magic wand here. There's nothing that's going to say, if I give the agency another thousand special agents tomorrow, Does that solve for the problem? No, it doesn't, because you still have an experience gap. You have talked about the complexity of the mission, that it isn't Mm -hmm. just those protective details that we've all seen on television, that that Secret Service also investigates financial crimes and so forth. Is it too complex? Does the mission need to be reduced? I think the mission needs to be refined. You know, I've I've said before, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, that the Secret Service has to decide what they want to be when they grow up. Do you want to be a protective agency or do you want to be an investigative agency? It goes back to that balance. I think since 9-11, we're never going to get back to that 50-50 balance of being able to execute on 
investigating crimes against the Treasury with the greatest level of efficacy and provide our attention to protection. There's only so much you can have your head on a swivel to look in both directions. And right now, they have to prioritize, hey, maybe all of these investigative mandates that we have, maybe some of them should be reduced. Maybe we don't have to focus on X, Y, and Z. Maybe they look at and provide a committee that looks at the investigative responsibilities to see where there's a nexus back to protective responsibilities. And maybe those are the ones we focus in on. And I, I look towards electronic crimes. I look at you know, crimes or investigations around uh, critical infrastructure protection. Those domains actually are, are interoperable with the protective mission. So maybe that's where they have to go because having you know, core legacy treasury investigations, while individuals like myself would be very upset if they go away, maybe that's what we have to do for Secret Service 2.0. Maybe that's what we have to do to focus and refine the investigative mission to better align to what we know is a prioritized protective mission. The protective mission itself has grown. President Trump authorized protection of four members of his family and three officials from his administration for six months after he left office, which was a break in tradition, which further stretched the Secret Service. Do you think there has to be a reduction in the number of people who are provided protection? No, I don't. When I say that, people get you know, shocked. The Biden administration right now has a significant amount of protectees between the children of the president and the grandchildren of the president. All of these individuals who have been designated as receiving protection have a material impact on the way that the president can operate. And I I take a look at, at Biden today. If something was to ever happen to his children or grandchildren, any response by the president is going to be an emotional response. It's not going to be a measured response. So there's an important aspect here of protecting those family members, those cabinet members, on the ability for the office of the presidency to remain effective in times of a crisis. The level of protection, when we talk about the mandate expanding, it's not just the numbers of protectees. It's how we have to protect them. Gone are the days of just guards, guns, and gates in terms of physical protection. It's now much more complex. The threat environment and the way individuals make threats towards our protectees are significantly different. It's digital. We're looking at people through social media. So there's a whole different skill set that's now required from the protective intelligence side of the house to assess threats that we didn't see 10 years ago. So that, again, is, 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 is challenging for the service, coupled with the number of protectees, coupled with the changing threat environment, coupled with X, Y, and Z, it's never ending. So you have to build greater resiliency into your organization on your core competencies of protection and then investigation to be able to address these things. Should the Secret Service be moved out of the Department of Homeland Security? No, absolutely not. I know that there's been, you know, Discussion of moving the Secret Service back to Treasury. That's where I started. I went through when I was hired back in 2001. We were under the Department of Treasury. I think legacy agents would like to go back to to Treasury, but it's not going to be. It's not going to solve the problem. You're all you're doing is you're going to another agency, net new now, and trying to fight for resources and manpower and everything like that. The Department of Homeland Security has changed since inception, so hasn't the Secret Service. And I think they're becoming more closely aligned to what the, the missions of each group are and how they can build synergies across. And again, I'll look towards electronic crimes, critical infrastructure protection. In those domains, I think that there's a way to play to the economies of scale even better to, to provide more of a holistic approach to addressing those domains. It sounds like a crisis to me. I'm always hesitant to use the word crisis. It's a significant challenge, but I think it's a challenge that is manageable. If I was to call it a crisis, though, 
from my current position today, what I always advise our clients is that through every crisis, there is an opportunity. And there is an opportunity here for the Secret Service to constantly get better and identify the deficiencies. And talking about the deficiencies isn't a bad thing. This report was done not absent of Secret Service involvement, but with full involvement of the Secret Service. And I think that that's a signal for their willingness to identify problems and then work towards those solutions. That was Jonathan Wackrow, a veteran of the U.S. Secret Service and now CEO of Teneo Risk. I've been reading about problems in the Secret Service for the last uh, several weeks. Actually, I started reading Carol Lennig's fabulous book, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, which I highly recommend to everybody. Carol is, of course, a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter at The Washington Post. Uh, she did a deep dive on the Secret Service in her book, Zero Fail, and it's, it don't really make your hair stand up straight in places. Uh, Secret Service has long been plagued with uh, problems of uh, overwork and bad behavior as well over the years. Yeah, we um, all remember so Cartagena. Agents behaving badly overseas has been a recurrent problem with the Secret Service. And, um, you know, this is not just your ordinary government agency. This is the government agency protecting the president and uh, the White House in general and uh, with its uniform division. So um, we've had a lot of fence hopping at the White House and over the years. Anyway, I got not a pretty in the picture. front door with a knife. Remember that? And ran around inside the White House. Yeah. So Secret Service needs uh, a lot more attention. And that's it for this week. Thanks a lot for joining us. Remember to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and tune in next week for another episode. I'm Jean Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Look forward to talking to you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 